1994, a woman was abducted near her home in South Africa. She was then taken to an isolated spot where she was brutally attacked and left for dead. But against all odds, she will survive, and her story will serve to help millions of survivors cope with their trauma. This is the story of Alison Botta. Am I wearing Halloween merch? Yes, I wish all of it was in the shot. It's so nice and so comfortable. If you love and support Stephanie Harlow, go buy her merch. Look at it. It's so appropriate. There's a typewriter. There's a typewriter. Okay, now that you got that out of your system. If I was to tell you that I have found my match in the gym, what is the first thing that would come to your mind? What is it? You're gonna be like, whoa, Maya, you found somebody striving for their goals, going as hard as you do. No, I <laughs> find somebody with as much spatial awareness as I have, kind of, and also the same movement range. Because, you know, I kind of move like the trolls in Harry Potter. I have never said that out loud. Now, thinking about it, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. The troll from the toilet, from the first one, and all of the trolls that then Hagrid takes care of. Yes, wow, I, I might need a minute to just reconcile with this fact. So, yeah, I was just moving around, you know. Luckily, hey, I have Kstifa. <laughs> this is not a sponsorship. Of course it's not, you have like 400 subscribers. And I love and cherish every single one of you. But yeah, as you know, I have Kstifa, so everything is fine with my trollish movements. So, as I'm moving, you know, at my own rhythm, like doing my bits, like just going to the next machine, <laughs> well, somebody was doing the exact same thing, but like slamming at me, you know, against me. My phone fell <laughs> to like a different location, was behind me. His, I don't know what he had, like headphones and phone fell. None of us said sorry. We both picked up what we dropped and we just moved on. It's like, this happens to us on a daily basis. And I was like, I got you, you got me. Luckily, nobody was hurt, but this would have ended a different way. Okay, and now let's just pretend like you are on the news, you're the news anchor, and you're passing the silly, goofy mood on, and you're like, hey, now we go to a serious topic, a serious Maya enters the scene. Yes, I, I got you, Jen. I got you. We are back in Hornsville. It is the penultimate? No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not the penultimate. Next one is the penultimate. This is the third story, the third case I'm telling you in this series of Hornsville. What is Hornsville? It is a village that you visit on this channel only once a year. It surfaces on the map only once a year. And when you meet its characters, when you meet its citizens, and you hear about their stories, they might just scar you for life. A trigger warning, which I should have done on all of these videos, but no, my stupid ass thinks about how I move like a troll and I don't do them. This story is heavy. It includes the theme of sexual assault, it includes the theme of rape. There's a lot of graphic imagery. If you know the story, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's to do with disemboweling somebody and 
hurting their organs and then putting them back into the place, but it is a survivor story. And by the end of it, you're going to feel like you made a friend, like you made another friend, because that is how Ellison's book made me feel. Yes, I read the book behind and I would suggest you get on it, because it is so well written. You can totally see that this woman does this for a living. These motivational speeches, just relating to people on a personal basis. I genuinely felt like, no, I'm part of this family, like, I know this woman by the end of the book. And another thing, not over-promising here, but one main reason why I went into this case is because I again heard it, I think it was on Rotten Mango, Stephanie Sue covered this case, and I really again connected to Alison and her story because it is such a unique survivor story. But also, I wanted to do something that I haven't seen covered so much, and that is the gang rape and motivations behind it, because that never made sense in my head. Not that it makes sense now, but I understand why some people would engage in it. I kind of understand what soup of flaws and just bad personality traits and background is needed for somebody to actually engage in something so cruel and disgusting. Again, I will never be able to comprehend it, but by the end of this video we might have a better understanding of why these two people committed this crime, and in general, why people might commit gang rape. So, without further ado, let us dive into the story of Alison Botta. Our story starts in the early morning hours of December the 18th, 1994. Alison just finished catching up with her friends, she was at her friend's house, she picked up some of her clean laundry from them, and they were just having pizza, chatting, catching up. And as she left and drove off in her trusty Renault car that she named Reginald, by the way, people who name their pets and their cars after humans, giving them human names, are just the best type of people. Just because, you get it, because they humanize the objects. You get it, because this is truly a story about somebody who can humanize even the objects, and two individuals who objectify humans. Anyways, as she was driving her car and going into her street, we're in South Africa, by the way, near Port Elizabeth at this point. I will put up the map that Alison puts in her book. So, as she just turned into her street, she noticed that there are a few cars just parked up where she would usually park Reginald. So, she thought nothing of it, like she's going to park up a couple of spots ahead, and as she did, she did things on command, you know, automatically switching off the car, leaning towards the passenger seat to pick up all of the clean laundry, and just as she did, she felt a cold blade against her neck. She said it felt like a really long knife, something like a letter opener, and that it felt cold and spiny pressing against her skin. The voice behind the person pressing the blade on Alison's neck said, don't worry, I don't want to hurt you. I just want to use your car for an hour. So, as he opened the door, still holding the blade to her neck, he made Alison move onto the passenger seat, and he drove off. The gear that Alison went to from the get-go, from those first couple of minutes, was that she just chose to believe him. She knew subconsciously everything that is to come out of this man's mouth would be a lie, 
Rather, she chose to believe his words and focus on the next steps. So, think about the next steps in the conversation and what she's going to say. So, they just start chit-chatting and the man says, you live in number one, don't you? And now she's thinking, like, how many times has he been in front of my house? Has he been stalking me? How does he actually know where I live? Like, this is a premeditated attack. As she doesn't respond, he asks her what her name is, and she decides to lie and say Susan, to test it out again, and she asks him for his name, and he says his name is Clinton. He is lying too, as we are going to find out soon. To test the grounds further, Ellison starts asking him more personal questions. Well, she only gets to utter one, and that is, where are you from? And he says he'd rather not speak about himself. So, there's again awkward silence in the car, and then the man asks her, so, you live there alone? And I think at this point, Alison probably knew, I mean, if he was a stalker, he was a bad one, because she, again, chose to lie and say, no, I'm living with my boyfriend, he's actually expecting me, so he's gonna be worried if you don't drop me off soon, so let's, you know, do this joyride, and then you drop me off at my house, right? She decides to test the grounds even further and says, well, why don't I get out of the car and then you take it out for a ride? You don't even have to return it, just sort of to see what his response would be. And he says no, because he wants company. And he's actually looking to pick up one of his friends. This friend of his apparently stole his TV and also owes him some money, so he wants to just take a joyride with his friend in his car. And Allison is panicking at this moment because this introduces a prospect of another person entering the car. And also she felt that at this moment she just felt helpless. She felt like she was never not in control of a situation like she was that night in her own car. But she chose not to panic. She wanted to deal with each moment as it came. Just a quick sideline, and I won't take too much of your time, but I just recently heard it on yet another podcast, and this podcast is run by an ex-cop, and I have heard it on so many others, I have heard so many detectives speak about this. So, this isn't about victim-blaming whatsoever. It is just that, from what we know now, based on how people have perceived so many true crime cases in the past, If something like this was to happen to you, probably 99% of the people would be paralyzed, would act exactly the same as Allison did. If somebody was to break the window to their car, put a blade to their neck and tell them to move their seat and then take them within that car. Or, I mean, in the US it would probably be a gun, so you don't want to be shot, you would be paralyzed with fear and you would do exactly the same. But if by any chance you find yourself in this situation, which, God, I hope nobody ever does, whether it is in a car or not, if somebody was to threaten you with a weapon for you to enter or be moved to a secondary location and you are not to be paralyzed with fear, don't allow them to get you to a secondary location. You have better chances of survival just running, even being shot, even being stabbed with a knife that you would, because nothing good will happen at that secondary location. It's probably going to be an ordeal, something that they have fixated on, have planned and relieved in their head for 
months and months on end. I just wanted to mention that because it isn't really said enough and some people might not know and might think like there are better chances for them to survive if somebody was to move them somewhere else and then maybe they can talk them out of it. But according to every single person who actually knows what they're talking about, like ex-police officers, no. Just if you were ever not paralyzed to your core, if you are within like 1% of people who wouldn't react like Ellison, run for it. Like it, open that door, get the hell out, do whatever you need to do to get out of that location and not let them bring you to a secondary one. Now back into the story. The two of them are driving. And what are the chances? But Ellison actually sees a yellow van. And she realizes this is a police car. Like if she could only flag them somehow, if she could only get out and run to it, she would find her escape. But she was so paralyzed with fear that she doesn't. They reach the main street, and this street seems to be full with people just loitering, spending their night near the beach. And as they do, Clinton is just squinting, looking through the crowds to spot his friend. And Allison is just sitting in the passenger seat, thinking what is going to happen when this friend reappears. And then Clinton slams on the accelerator, trying to make a turn to see if he can find his friend elsewhere from another angle. And as he does, Allison says, careful, it's an old car, you might roll it. And she's surprised that she spoke without being addressed first, but also she's surprised that he did slow down and listen to her. And everything Clinton really does in this car is in order for him not to get caught. Like, if this car was to stop in the middle of the road, wasn't to actually be able to switch on, well, of course, she's going to run out, go to that yellow van that has passed them, or just go to the next person on this beach and manage to alert somebody to get help for her. Later, he will be intentionally driving below the speed limit in order for them not to get caught. So, eventually, on the road, he spots his friend. When this friend of Clinton's gets into the car, Clinton asks him, does he have any smokes? And as he hands the cigarette over to Clinton, Allison asks, can she have one? And as they offer her one, she is just smoking and listening to what they're saying in the background. But she's paying attention to where they're driving because they seem to be driving out of the city and towards Beach Road, which is one of the main roads near the beachfront. Clinton introduces both of them to each other. He says, hey, this is my friend Susan, this is my friend Teens. Now, later we're gonna find out that he actually wasn't lying about his friend's name, so I don't know what the logic behind that was. Well, actually, I kind of know what the logic behind that was. We'll speak about that as well. Think dominant submissive, just for clues. Spoil it all. Spoil it all. As they're driving down this road, she is sort of in the background. She isn't focusing too much on what they're saying, but she hears that they have somebody called Natalie that lives in the suburb of Overbakens. And as they're talking, they're talking about heading there later, and she realizes this still isn't over. Like, between here and Overbakens, there is some time. Are they gonna dispose of me somewhere on the road, what is going to happen to me, am I heading with them to that place, like nothing good is going to come out of this. She said that as they were driving, somehow she didn't want to believe that they were lying. 
She again convinced herself that they were actually heading to this part of the town and that they are just going to dump her somewhere next to the road. So while listening to them talk, she was also trying to think how would she come from this overbarkens part of the town back to her mother's house. She was sort of planning the route, just trying to process and disassociate from the current situation. Eventually, Clinton parks up her car in this place in the middle of nowhere, just garbage everywhere, broken glass, and he parks it up in such a way that the car is facing the road, but they're about 90 meters away from the main road. So even if somebody was to be passing by following this route, they wouldn't be able to see them. He asks her how to switch off the headlights of the car, and she just turns the knob and switches them off. And now the guy in the back gets out and Allison is just sitting there impatiently and she says, now what? And Clinton looks at her like, oh, I thought it was clear that we brought you out here for sex. To which she replies, no, because she actually wanted to believe so badly that this is just going to end with her getting out of the car and moving on with her life and them taking her car only. As Allison came to this realization, Teens is just outside having another cigarette, checking the road, and then looking back at them. So Clinton asks Allison if she will fight, if she's going to resist, and she says no. And this is when the rape proceeds. Clinton asks her to perform oral sex on him, and then quite blatantly tells her to suck his cock and then if she bites him that he's going to kill her. And as she's performing oral sex on him, he's holding the knife right next to her head. And then she doesn't know how that lasted because, again, she disassociated from most of that. She just remembers him now performing oral sex on her, leaving live bites all across her body, asking her, does her boyfriend do these things for her? Getting her to say that she's enjoying herself. After he moved on from performing oral sex to leaving love bites all over her breast area, then he even kissed her, and she just remembers the smell of nicotine, the smell of cigarettes, and he said, you have the nicest tasting fanny, and she was just completely disconnected and disgusted. And this is when Clinton raped her, and she remembers trying to escape as much as possible, not touch him, his skin, any part of his snaky skin, and just instead touch, like, different parts of the car, but due to the adrenaline, due to the trauma, her body betrayed her, and she managed to reach orgasm as well as he did. Just as he finished and put his head through the window, speaking to teens, he said, do you want to have sex with this lovely lady? And teens responded, no, I want to fuck this fucking bitch. His words, not mine. When teens approached the car, he almost went to perform oral sex on Allison, but Clinton said, nah, man, my cum is still in there. So he recoiled, he kissed Allison instead, and then, even though he wasn't even erect enough, he still proceeded to rape her. Eventually, maybe because his friend Clinton was still watching, maybe because he couldn't bear the idea that he is raping her after somebody else did. He said, no, I can't do this, and he just pulled up his pants, leaving Allison in the car with Clinton again. 
After the rape, Allison said Clinton next to her just seemed to be almost dozing off in the passenger seat. But then Teens was on the car, he was on the bonnet, and that is the first time she noticed the knife. The second knife with a blade that looked much longer than the first knife she had seen that night. She asked, can I get dressed? But none of them responded. As far as the two men were concerned, she didn't even exist. She started putting her clothes back on and as she lifted her gaze, she noticed that Teens is getting more and more restless outside. He's pacing, he's still holding that gun, and that is when he addresses his friend Clinton as Franz. Both of them still pretending as if Allison is not a person, as if she's not in that same car. Teens says to Franz, if we return her to town now, she's going to go to the police. Allison says, no, I won't. I don't want my parents to find out about this. But Franz says he doesn't believe her. So he turns to his friend and says, what if we leave her here but without her clothes on? Then somebody's just going to think, you know, she's a crazy person, right? And Allison realized that they could communicate in Afrikaans as they did earlier on that night, but now they were speaking in English and she figured they're doing this in order to intimidate her. And then one of them said, what do you think old Nick would want us to do with her? Alison remembered from her church days that old Nick is just another name for Satan. And the other man responded, I think he wants us to kill her. If there was a point in this video where you thought you're going to go take a break, make a cup of coffee, catch a breath of fresh air, this is it, because it's going to go south from now on. I mean, even more south than it already is. So, if you want to do that, do that now, and then come back, unpause me, and let us dive into some of the grimmest details of a story that I have ever heard. So, just as the two of them finish chatting about how the devil wants them to do this, from one moment to another, as Alison is still putting the clothes back on, she feels that Franz, who she knew as Clinton up until a minute ago, is now on top of her trying to strangle her. She says his hands felt like somebody was pulling a tourniquet around her neck. And she utters, please don't kill me. To which he just says sorry. She remembers soiling the seat where she was, so urinating, which is going to become crucial, by the way, so that's why I'm mentioning it, and then everything blacking out. The next thing she remembers, she's outside of the car, lying on that dirty ground with the trash everywhere around her, and both of them are using that second knife to stab her. It will later be said that Teens was the one to make the first cut, so both of them will stab her in the neck area for 17 times, and then 37 more times would be focused in her abdominal, mostly pubic area. As this is happening, especially the next stab wounds, Allison remembers the moon right above her. And she just said, like, instead of focusing on the head of the person stabbing her, she just focused on the moon that was right above the man's head. As both of these men were satisfied with their doing, they thought there was enough stabs now. One of them actually said there's no way that she could have survived this. And they just went back into the car and drove off. Alison remembers going in and out of consciousness while she's lying on this beach and 
bleeding out, but she knew that she can't allow this to happen to anybody else. What that meant for her at that moment was that she thought she was going to die, so she starts writing their names in the sand. So she writes Franz, then she writes Teens, and she wasn't really sure about his spelling, which, come on, who is? And then she writes underneath both of their names, I love mom, and then she passes out again. Once she was conscious again, the book makes you believe, like, she's yet again, just like every single part of that night, witnessing this as if it were happening to somebody else, as if she's just an observer. She realizes, okay, I can't stay here, because if I don't get to that road, my chances of survival are zero. She soon focuses on the two areas where most of the injuries were situated, so the pubic abdominal area and then her neck. And she realizes when she's touching her stomach area that she feels something gooey. And she's like, okay, this isn't good. Her intestines were outside of her stomach. So she's thinking on her feet, and looking next to her, she sees one of her shirts. So she decides to use her shirt to scoop her intestines, as if it's a bag that she needs to carry. As she scoops her intestines with her shirt, she also realizes that her head is almost detached as well. It's just, if she doesn't support it, it seems like it's going to flip over. So she has to hold her head and then with the other hand hold her stomach. And somehow, step by step, inch by inch, she starts moving towards the road. She said it took an eternity. She doesn't even remember how long this took, but it was 90 meters. But of course, she was blacking out trying to persist, trying to get onto the road, and not just get onto the road, but then collapse and lie on it in such a way where a car wouldn't just run over her. Because then all of this effort was for nothing. So once she finally reaches the road, she collapses horizontally against the white line. While she is lying on the asphalt, she is surrounded by complete silence. Pitch darkness, she's kind of going in and out of consciousness. But then she hears something that sounds like a car engine. The car has approached, slowed down, stopped. And then it seemed like somebody looked outside towards her, had a couple of minutes of thoughts, and decided to turn around and speed up and leave her by herself again. I think it's safe to say whoever was in that car doesn't give cars human names or maybe just have a zilch of soul in their body. But Ellison says she doesn't blame them. She says, I mean, if you were to have seen her at the side of the road, you would have probably been afraid if you were a woman by yourself in the middle of nowhere. Or maybe you would have thought it's some sort of ambush, some sort of decoy. Somebody left to get you out of the car and then do the same kind of thing to you. So she says she doesn't blame the person. The only thing is that she felt sad because she felt, what if that's the only car that passes by tonight? I don't have too long to live. What if that was my only chance? 
Fortunately, the next sounds that she hears are from multiple cars. All of them seem to screech to the halt and multiple people get out. There's a woman that is screaming and Alison just remembers how much that bothered her, like, on top of everything. She said, like, she doesn't need this. She needs a calm person. And luckily, she finds a calm person in this handsome man who kneels down and holds her hand. And he keeps telling her that everything is going to be okay. She remembers trying to talk, but she couldn't. So, her and this man establish a way of communication between each other just by her squeezing his hand. By this point, only 90 minutes have passed since the moment that Alison was abducted in front of her house to this moment where she was found at the side of the road. And it would be two long hours before this ambulance car actually arrived. Partially, that is probably because of the descriptions people who found Allison would have given to this ambulance. If you were to describe somebody's throat being slit, the intestines being outside of her body, I mean, you would think, you'd like to think that they would treat this as the priority number one of the night. They will send the ambulance straight away. But also, according to Allison and people in her life, they didn't expect her to live. Ever. Even when the ambulance showed up, even when she was actually in the hospital, based on her injuries, every single doctor, and these are people who study this, people with degrees, who don't believe in miracles, in God's, something being God's work, said that what happened to Alison, the fact that she survived it, is indeed a miracle. Another partial reason, and this is a sideline, but I have three reference points for South Africa and its culture. One, according to my last name, you probably know it's not my nationality and culture, based on the accent, it's my husband's. The second is my friend from uni. Hey, it's uh, she actually watches this channel. My husband doesn't, so middle finger to that man. And the third one is Trevor Noah. And Trevor had this kit, it's still my favorite thing, to which I return every now and then. I think it was one of those behind the scenes, which are literally the best bits of the Trevor Noah show. And the skit is about calling 911 in South Africa, and how if you were to call the equivalent of the emergency services, first of all, you know, in the US, they would send somebody, even if you were to ring them, they would triangulate where you're at, even if you were not to utter a word. They'd be like, okay, that person is in danger, that's why they called us. In South Africa, you would have to be alive, not paralyzed by fear, able to describe what is going on. And even then, they would take their sweet time. And God forbid you were to call about, I don't know, an animal being stuck on a tree that you can't reach, like a pet of yours. Well, then they'd be like, well, call us when it's something serious, when it's human life in danger. And even then, yet again, we might take our precious time because we only deal with emergencies, okay? It is in the name of the services. He said it better. If it's not copyrighted, I'm gonna put it in. But it's something I kept thinking when researching this story, like how insane it is that you are there, barely alive, having survived this, and the ambulance is just taking their precious time. Like, what else do you have to do on that evening? What else? Just appear on the spot and help this woman out. She's clearly the number one priority. And we know that they should have been there much sooner because the actual drive to the hospital is about 15 minutes. So that is why everybody in this story believes people have given up. 
Tian, the guy that reached the scene, the handsome man who is holding her hand, figured out the system because he realized she can't talk. So he figured out to ask questions where she could answer with yes or no or communicate through single squeeze or two squeezes of his hand. This was a slow process. So at first he was saying the model of the cars. And then when he said Renault, she squeezed his hand once. Then it was up to determining the color. Allison used her finger to write the letter Y again. So he's like a yellow Renault. She squeezes his hand once again. He asked her if she was English or Afrikaans. Then English. She squeezed his hand once. Has she been raped? She squeezed his hand one time. How many men? Then she gripped his hand twice and she knew he will understand. He asked her if she had a boyfriend and then she squeezed his hand twice to indicate no. To which he responded, well, would you like one? You and I must go out on a date when this is all over. And I mean, you owe me because there's a lot of your blood on my shirt. So you kind of ruined this thing. Everything he was doing was in order to keep her to stay alive. Like, in order to keep her eyes open, he was commenting on her smile, on how she has the most beautiful eyes. He was doing everything in his power to keep her talking, squeezing his hand, and in doing so, also describing the crime so that he can describe it to the police as soon as they make it to this hospital. Finally, when the ambulance arrived, she didn't want to let go of Tian. She completely built her trust with this man after this ordeal, and she was fearful of what is going to happen in the hospital now. So he went into the ambulance car with her and they drove off to the Port Elizabeth Provincial Hospital. At the door before going into the operating room, she had to say goodbye to Tian and Alison was really scared. She was just terrified because even as she was lying on this stretcher just before the operation, the nurses and the doctors didn't even know the extent of the injuries to her neck. So at some point, the nurse actually removed the suction pump and Allison started moving and shaking her arms. She says, as a madwoman, I say completely appropriately to flag for help because nobody knew what was going on. So the nurse had to keep the suction pump at her neck. In the documentary that is on Amazon Prime that I would also suggest watching for this case, they go through the extent of the injuries. And in particular, what I liked about both the book and the documentary is that Allison included everybody who was present during the process, including Tian. Tian wrote a chapter or two, including the doctors, the surgeons, they appeared in the documentary, including certain police members as well. So we kind of go in and out of everybody's perspective. So this is yet again a graphic warning description of what these doctors and surgeons will encounter now that Allison is left with them. David Comey, one of the surgeons, said that he had never seen the horror of the injuries that Allison had suffered on that night. Her windpipe was cut through and she was breathing solely through that gaping hole in her collarbone. She was disemboweled, but that wasn't even the major problem. The major issue was that even to operate on her, these surgeons would have to take out all of the beach sand, the charcoal, 
the little bits of glass and garbage that were still in her bowel area, in between the intestines. So they will have to clear this. And even then, if successful, if the operation was to go through and everything was to be put back in place, Allison would have to come in for that area to be cleared over and over again. They knew immediately from the amount of stabs in that area that Allison will probably never be able to bear children. If you can recall, I told you to pay attention to a particular detail, and that was that Alison has emptied her bowels. Something I didn't know is that this is actually a common reaction to strangulation. But in this case, that was a good sign, because had she not emptied her bowels as Franz was strangling her, there is a greater chance that the intestines and that area would have been infected, but this way it wasn't. But the silver lining here was that her esophagus was undamaged, meaning that she will probably recover her voice, and that no internal organs nor vessels supplying blood to the rest of her system were damaged. As this doctor is preparing the operation room and sort of briefing Allison that they will need to clear her bowel area as well, trying to make her feel comfortable, make her feel that she can trust somebody else, He's also telling his nurses and doctors that they need a specialist, they need an ENT to operate on her. And luckily for them, and for Alison in particular, this ENT specialist called Dr. Volodya Angelov was just at home preparing to come in for an early shift. And this guy traveled for his job, so this was just yet another miracle that he was actually in town working at that particular hospital on that particular night. Before her operation, they get Alison to sign a consent form and also to put in the emergency contact details and she puts her mom's details. And if you look at her handwriting on this form and writing that phone number down, it just seems like a handwriting of a completely steady person, nobody going through any distress at all. As they bring her into the operation room, we go into the perspective of Tian, who is outside in the waiting room when the police comes in. He was introduced to a police officer called Nadia, and Nadia told him she seems to have a good idea on who could be responsible here, but she will need Allison to wake up and ID the suspects. After Allison's operation that lasted for over three hours and some hours spent in high care, the police officers were back to speak with her. Nadia told her that they already have them and they found her car as well, that they are keeping them in custody and that they won't get bail so that she shouldn't be worried. They just want her to ID both of them from an array of photographs that they have to show her. Allison sees this array of pictures. She chooses both of them from the pictures that she was shown, and then Anya returns to the police office. But then a couple of days after, she goes back to the hospital and says to Allison, it would be great if you could verbalize it. Like, if you were to say their names, it would give more credence to the story. It would be more powerful towards their arrest and keeping them in custody. And it just... This part of the story drove me crazy. There's so many parts. There is one that is coming up that is even more insane than this. But Allison writes, 
that's fine. And what that meant was taking the tube that was connecting to her lungs. So all the doctors were like, what if she realizes she can't talk? What if the operation didn't work? Like, it's too early for this to happen. But Alison just took that piece of paper where she was writing everything down and she just wrote, take it out. And as soon as they did, she said, that's wonderful. Their names are Franz and Tien's. She remembers those eight days in high care as her just sleeping, having family member visits. Nausea and pain, just a lot of pain. Every single day she had to go for her abdomen injury to be scraped. And this was, of course, done when she was conscious. She was just going through it and just talking to this doctor about the trivial things of the day to disassociate from that moment. But on a mental level, she said that there was something that she couldn't compute. And that is that they wanted to kill her. Like, rape was another thing, but that was kind of like a secondary thing that she was thinking about. The first thing was, why would two individuals want to do that to another? Why would two humans want to kill another? Especially in this situation where she posed no threat. Well, to find that out, we are going into the perspective of Melvin Humpel, the legend, the one and only Melvin, the police officer, who was at this moment, as Ellie was contemplating on why two people would kill another person, interrogating the two individuals that got us into this predicament in the first place. On the 19th of December, our boy Melvin here got a call from the robbery squad. And they said he better get down there, there was an attack and rape of a young woman. Nadia briefed him when he reached the location, saying they found the victim's car with the keys still in ignition, abandoned near this brewery in the North End. It was Nadia and another police officer that went to the flats to arrest both men. And at this stage, they were looking for suspects in two other reported rape cases. They suspected Franz in both. They thought that in the first rape case, he operated on his own, and in the second one, he tagged along his buddy Tien's. And it was actually Melvin who, with Nadia, first caught Franz in February. This is when Franz was accused of abduction and rape of a 20-year-old woman, but he was released on bail. Why was, he a re why was he released on bail, Maya, when he is clearly a danger to the society? Well, there was no medical evidence, it was his word against hers, and also at that stage Franz had a stable job as a driver and also had a fixed address, so the court had to let him go. Because he walked free, he joined forces with his friend Teens on this occasion, when on December the 4th, so just a couple of months later, both of them struck again. And this time they accosted, raped and sexually assaulted a 21-year-old pregnant woman who was simply going to buy cigarettes. Here, because this was in a different area, they get arrested by a different police station and they appear at a different magistrate's court for somebody to decide if they can be let out on bail. So, this police station apparently didn't have the communications, because this was still 90s, to communicate with the other one to know about the previous charge, 
So the prosecutors who presented this case didn't have this information and both of them were released on bail again. So as Melvin is brought into the prison where they're holding the two men, he's thinking, who do I choose? I need to go strategically about this because I already dealt with Franz Dutoy, so maybe I should choose teens. Maybe there's a better option that he will cave. He's 19, I haven't dealt with him yet, so let me choose him to interrogate first. And this seemed to have been a great option because as soon as they're in the interview room, Melvin tells him, you see, teens, these are the charges against you. One of them is rape, and then the other one, oh, how do I break this to you? It's attempted murder. And teens immediately reacts in shock, like starts sweating on the spot, like, what do you mean attempted murder? To which Melvin replies, well, you remember the woman that you left for dead on the side of the road? You wouldn't guess it, but she survived. And not just that she survived, oh, she's talking and she remembers everything. If I were ever a fly in a single room, this would be it. This would be the moment that I would want to witness purely for the sheer terror in this man's eyes when he realized that he didn't kill the witness. So there, somebody can actually testify against him. After he comes to this realization that he didn't actually kill Allison, Teens just takes one of the rings off of his finger and hands it over to Melvin. And Melvin notices the ring is still bloodied. He says, this belongs to Allison, so take it back to her. Still has her blood on it. And then he starts telling the police officer exactly how it happened. According to teens, that afternoon the two of them were just having a barbecue and chatting and Franz suggested that they should find a beautiful woman to rape and then kill with a car. Then after hanging out in the central area, teens decided to stay in that club zone and go to a club and find a girl. And Franz was to probably go home, change and then join him. But instead, we know that Franz, for whatever reason, was in the same street where Allison was. He abducted her, and then the next thing Teens remembers was him and Allison picking him up in that car. Teens said the story about the stolen TV and him owing him money was a lie. It was just something to get as an excuse to pick Teens up. As they're now driving, they get to the area, he describes the rapes, and then how Franz strangled Allison and that got her out of the car. Once they were done stabbing, teens actually asked Franz, how do we know that she's dead? And Franz said, let's find out, and stabbed her a couple more times in the private area. He confessed to Melvin that he was the one to make the first cut, but then Franz was really just bloodthirsty. He pushed him aside, and Franz was the one to make the most of the cuts. One of the more horrifying details that teens will conclude this confession with was the murder weapon. He ended up handing it over to Melvin, which I don't understand because the book makes it seem like there in the interrogation room he was still with a knife meaning that in the holding cell he still had a knife on him. I don't think that's correct, but sure, wherever this knife was, hopefully safely in an evidence locker, it still had Allison's blood on it. Not just that, but the next morning, 
Teens was making breakfast with this knife that held Allison's blood on it. Didn't even bother to wipe it, didn't bother to wipe it after that breakfast. Fran's confession was pretty much the same thing. None of them really lied about their involvement or tried to blame the other. But with Franz, they actually found out that the two of them planned to do the same thing with another woman the very next day. Had they not been arrested, they would have probably done this. But with this woman, they thought they should throw her off the bridge. And Melvin said none of them showed any remorse, but especially Franz. He was just talking about this matter-of-fact. Like, it wasn't even him that was the main perpetrator in the acts. As these two suspects are just showing how callous and emotionless they truly are, Allison, from within the hospital walls, is showing the complete opposite. As she has identified both of these men, literally the first couple of days in her hospital, she is not just thinking rationally, not just even attempting to talk when she needs to, but she has, writing on her notebook, alerted her mom that her friend from London was supposed to stay in her flat to come to visit her, so that she needs to communicate with this friend of hers, in order for the friend not to be disappointed. And she remembers this time that she has told this friend always how safe this area is, how safe the area she lived in is, how is she going to explain this to her? While the two men were facing the judge in the magistrate's court, confessing to their crimes and, of course, not being let out on bail on this occasion, Allison spent her Christmas day at the hospital. And she remembers the treat of the day was that she ate the first solid what she calls the solid food, it was this fish soup. She remembers how lonely she felt, even though people came to visit every day, even though this was the news at this point. So her whole room was flooded with flowers, with the cards, wishing her a quick recovery. She just saw all of the hospital staff go home to spend their Christmas with their families, and she wasn't yet. On December the 31st, as the doctor that operated on her was changing one of the dressings, he noticed that the swelling has gotten down. And finally, he approved the decision that Ellie can be released to the care of her loved ones within her home environment. Everybody insisted for Allison to leave the hospital in the wheelchair, but just as they reached the threshold, Ellie stood up from the chair, got up, and got out into the sunlight, because the new year was about to begin. In January, Allison decided to go back to the crime scene, just to see it for herself, to reconcile with what has happened, and also to be able to further describe this once it gets to the court. She described it as a clinical experience that helped her gain the mental map of the area. And she commemorated it with a picture, then she had redone the route of only 90 meters that seemed like an eternity for her on the night, and it was a beginning point for her to start healing. She released an interview on her story with the Eastern Province Herald, and by the end of January, she was overwhelmed by the support that this interview led to. From everybody, her family, friends, the hospital staff. So she wrote the Herald an open letter. 
For fear of omitting any one of you from my heartfelt thanks, I have decided to attempt to thank you all collectively. Each one who sent flowers, gifts, cards, wishes, thoughts, prayers, and love should know how they brought a smile to my face and an added warmth to my heart. I have life, beautiful people. You have my heart. For the rest of the month, Alison will remember interviews coming out with France and Tunes from jail. The stories in these articles would detail the public statement that Teens has made, saying that he's sorry for what he did. As he stands there, he has great remorse for his deeds, and he apologizes for what he did to her. And not just does he apologize for what he did to her, he is also asking for mercy. Another article told the story of Franz, who in front of a magistrate said how he is a good husband and father to his child. Yeah, we'll talk about that. He said how his wife and child know only of his good properties. He knows he has a problem, and when the bad side comes into him, then it's like a supernatural power that takes over his body. Teens would confess to the journalist that he believed in the devil. Franz would admit to his evil side that made him want to kill during sex. The newspaper articles called both of them sons of Satan. Meanwhile, Alison is going back and forth between her house and the hospital to have those wounds regularly examined, because she has noticed that the stomach injury resulted in sort of a bulge, because there were no muscles to hold her stomach in. So she was discussing a possibility of a plastic surgery in the future once the wound was to completely heal. She also had to deal with a wound in her neck becoming septic. Here, Dr. Angelo also had to drain everything that has piled up in that wound and to stitch it back again. You would think the logical sequence of this story would be for me now to start speaking about the trial. Well, yes, that would be very logical, but instead I need to piss everybody off, including myself, over and over again, because the police decided, rather the judges, because the South African legal system doesn't have a jury, so you appear in the court of law in front of one or multiple judges. Well, here, they decided, you know what, Alison, yes, she has been through enough. Like, she has identified these people, both from a photo lineup, then verbalized their names. She definitely knows it is them. But we need to have an actual in-person lineup. And usually, in South Africa, who thought of this, just personally contact me because I want to punch you in the face, right in your nozzle. So, usually... What you would do is you would stand physically, no, no glass in between the victim and the actual suspects. You just stand in front of them in this identification parade, and then you have to place your hand on the shoulder of the perpetrator. Here, for the first time ever, they actually introduced the glass, because... Justifiably so, you would think that somebody like Allison, a victim, a survivor in this story, would be petrified to do that, to go in person and put your actual hand on a perpetrator. Who thought of this rule? As she bravely identified both of them, so did three other women. 
Yes, you have heard about two. You will hear about that in more details. And you will also hear about another woman who they tried to abduct right after they did what they did with Allison. On June the 12th, 1995, Alison Botta's trial finally commenced, and it will last for between five and six months. Let us first focus on Alison, how she was portrayed, described by her friends, and this clinical psychologist that examined her for the trial. As I told you in Alison, every single one of us could find a really great, nurturing, selfless friend. Her friends would say that Alison was just one of those people you can ask for advice and you always knew that she will be truthful. She is that friend who might not give you the answer that you wanted to hear, but she will always be willing to listen and to give you a carefully thought through opinion. She was the person who would never forget anybody's birthday. And not just that, but again, her thoughtfulness comes to light here because she would be the person who would make sure that you get some form of a present, like a basket full of wonderful things, like a little card or just a bunch of flowers that would arrive as a surprise for you on that day. There was a friend who spoke about the time that Alison lived in London and that she went from South Africa to London to visit her and the guest room where she was staying was equipped as if it was a hotel for this friend by Alison. There were clean towels, there were little bars of soaps, there were aromatherapy oils, lotions for her feet, like these different delicious things to make you feel like you were actually on holiday. Alison even thought to put some warm clothes, just in case her friend didn't bring enough. Like, it's completely different temperature over here in London. So Alison was like, you know what? I have you covered. I got you. You don't even have to ask for it. That was the kind of friend she was. Not only her friends, but everybody who met Alison was touched by her. Like her headmistress, because Alison was the head girl in her school. This headmistress described Alison as a mature young woman of the utmost integrity and sound moral values. She said it wasn't just her strong personality and quiet confidence that made her a great leader as the head girl, but that she was always friendly, cheerful, courteous, and considerate, and related to others on this human level. For the courts, these testimonies from the friends and family members would matter. But what they will care most about was this testimony from the clinical psychologist. Because they had to assess her mental health. Is she in the right state of mind to make these allegations towards these two men? How has she been affected before and after? This psychologist would say that due to the three separate traumas, rape, assault, and near death, Alison showed symptoms of PTSD during the interview. These were displayed by Alison being hyper alert and jumpy, exhibiting sleep disturbance, and this sleep disturbance in turn impairing her energy and her work performance. At the time of the assessment, she concluded that Alison had symptoms of a major depression. And even though she was given antidepressant medications, she continued to experience these symptoms. She socialized well, but due to this experience, she will probably always feel different to others. The psychologist concluded her testimony by saying that Alison was well-adjusted emotionally because of the support of her friends and family before the attack. 
And because of this, she found meaning in the incident, and she is attempting to help others by talking about her suffering. And this, in turn, is helping her to make sense of it. As the court learns about Alison, on the other end of the spectrum, the news about France get published in the papers. You see, France, just a week before the trial, held a form of press conference. He gathered a couple of journalists because he wanted them to interview him. Because France wanted to publicly denounce Satanism. Well, that's not it, okay? So, he had a change of heart, he told the press, and wanted to denounce Satanism and explain how he was possessed by demons. He now thought of himself as an Apostle Paul who killed Christians and people in synagogues, but managed to change and turn to Jesus. That weekend, he said to the journalists, he is going to undergo exorcism to prove to everybody how he has denounced Satan and he is a changed man. He probably thought like this was going to like really influence the judges. I don't know. Why else do it? So this man, this is the best reenactment and one of the reasons why I need to watch this documentary. Because this man legit, legit organized an exorcism for the cameras in his prison cell. So he undergoes the exorcism, but you see, he, he messed up, and he messed up on cameras by his own doing, because he infamously mixed up incubus and succubus, one being the male, the other one being a female demon. He mixed those two up, incubus, succubus, while twitching. You know, you can't really multitask in this exorcism thing. You can't twitch and expel the devil out of you and also know the things that you learned in grade one of Satan school. It's hard, guys. Give him, cut him some slag. He put himself through it. Himself through all of it. So, yeah, that happened. And then, at trial, he decided to take the stand, because of course he did. The only thing that I want to know here is who were his lawyers, and how much, just how much did they hate him? Because if you were a lawyer, and it's not like your day one in law school, you probably know if somebody pleaded guilty, don't put a motherfucker on the stand, because they're gonna ruin themselves. And, of course, he did. <sighs> Life. He spoke about his previous Satan days, but before that, he spoke about his childhood. So, let us as well. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. Even before he spoke about his family, he took the stand and he apologized to the courts about his haircut. Because, as Allison states in the book Within Prison Walls, he made this ridiculous haircut where basically it's kind of like a form of a man bun with like the shaved sides. So he apologized to the court saying he doesn't have the adequate facilities to have a decent haircut within prison. So hard. And then he continued speaking a bit about his childhood, how his dad was actually a police officer. He remembered his church-going days and a good, strong relationship with his parents, but then he started to dabble into Satanism and started to skip school, his grades worsened, the typical... But then he pushes it a bit further. He said he had fallen with a bad crowd. He considers the bad crowd the weed smokers, the surfers, and the hippies. Super bad. 
extreme, literally every single person in shortage, but sure. But you see, he wasn't going to allow them to influence him. No, mm -mm. instead, he is going to live the life on his own rules. So what he did is he set the fire to one of the school buildings. So of course the school expels him. He doesn't get any charges for this, anything like that, because he had the reasoning here as well. Why did he burn the school down? Heavy metal, heavy metal music. Oh yeah, the underlining notes of metal music, what are they? Subliminal advertising. Hidden messages that subconsciously make the listener commit criminal deeds. And that listener is there listening like, so you weren't influenced by hippies, the criminal gang of all the gangs, but you were influenced by the lyrics of metal music. Sure. He never finished school. He actually never went beyond standard seven. I suppose that's a grade in South Africa. Never googled it. But when he moved to a school in Adelaide, when he was about 13, 14, he met this young lady. He met this woman and he was enchanted. And he said that this was his first introduction to Satanism. This woman told him she was the head bitch of a coven and she had supernatural powers. And he had witnessed it. He saw her casting spells on people, hoping to bring ill fortune in their lives. She showed him the secrets of black magic. And she had even summoned demons that spoke through her in these gruff, manly voices, showcasing, you know, their incubus strength. From what I could find, I think this was either his first wife or one of his first sexual experiences. And soon enough, even though he participated in these incantations, he believed she was the head witch, he realized that he needed something more. He wasn't just being turned on by regular sex. Rather, he was actually fantasizing and imagining raping women while he was having sex with this woman. When his parents realize he isn't going to school, well, they decide to at least send him to the army. But even in the army, he had issues with authority. Even there, he spent a couple of months in detention. After the army, he gets a job in a mine, and this is where he would meet another woman that he would marry, but he would eventually end up leaving her, because she, she wasn't a witch, she just didn't understand what he needed. And she, according to him, didn't satisfy him. Which we know that he isn't satisfied by consensual sex at this point. After that, he worked for a short time in a nightclub and then he returned to Port Elizabeth, where he met and married his second wife, Natalie. Now, a full-blown Satanist, he believes he is doing something here because he asked that Natalie becomes spellbound by him that she would never have the strength to leave and that she also gives him the son that would be born on his birthday. Side comment, this is why men would always be more selfish than women, because a woman would never wish upon herself, as narcissistic as she was, to bird a child on her own birthday. My grandma birthed my mom on her own birthday, Still the wildest thing in this family. Still cannot comprehend, will never comprehend. Imagine going through labor on your own birthday. No, 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 sorry, no. I'd love them to be a Scorpio as well and to be messed up if I were ever to have a child. No, 
Moving on. He was blessed enough for this request to be honored and his son was born on July the 6th. And Natalie still stood by him throughout the trial. So he said that this is the proof. He definitely denounced Satanism, but this is the inevitable proof. We can't ignore it. Satan exists. The power of Satan, his demons, is strong. And this should in turn prove that it wasn't his will to do what he did that night. The devil made him do it. In particular, not just the devil, but Incubus, the demon that he accepted in his life when he was 15. This is the demon that made him sexually insatiable, but also highly attractive to women. This demon gave him telekinetic powers that enabled him to move objects using only his eyes. This is the moment where I would get up and be like, prove it. Prove it right the fuck now. And that is why I am not in a position of power, because I make rash decisions. Even before he met teens due to this demon, due to Incubus, he would act alone and rape women on his own. He is what is known as a gentleman rapist. I hate the terminology as much as the next man. It has to change. But if you remember the storyline of that rape, him asking Alison, does she like it? Does her boyfriend do this to her to say that she likes it and enjoys it? That's the principle. The guy that chats to you, that makes you believe that he cares. When he finished with his testimony in the next couple of days, Alison wouldn't be allowed in court until she was to testify because the courts were to hear the testimonies of other victims. We find out that the first woman that he abducted and raped was actually employed by a company to be like one of those secret shoppers to spy on the opposite business. As she was to conduct a survey at a pizza place, Franz just pounced on her, shoved a gun to her head and told her to move over in her car. After he both sexually assaulted and raped her, he then drove her to a roadhouse, buying her a sandwich and a rose. After then pretending as if he were her boyfriend, he raped her again. Once he raped her for the second time, he dropped her off, telling her that she was an amazing person and that he hoped he could make it up to her sometime. On June the 13th, the courts would hear about the young pregnant woman who they attacked. This was in broad daylight. So you can see how they're learning from each and every attack and then making sure that they don't repeat the same mistakes with the next one. This attack happened at 12.30 p.m. the same afternoon, just the night before Allison's attack would happen. These two tried to wrench open her car door. For a split second, though, friends would look away and this woman managed to lock her doors from the inside, so they fled. Judge Chris Janssen would have to make the decisions on the verdicts for both teens and Franz based off of their previous offenses, taking them into consideration as well. And these would include rapes, but another thing that we'll find out about Franz during the trial was that his last job that his parents got him yet again was as a driver, but he was found to be stealing from his employer. 
leading to him actually serving some time in prison on unrelated charges to this particular crime for three years. After which he will go out on the streets, would rape on his own for a while, and then would eventually meet teens. For Ellison, during her trial and her own testimony, she said she felt really disconnected from it, like it was somebody else's proceedings. She'd be making notes on this notepad and then passing them back and forth, sort of chatting through this notepad with her mom. But what she said she hated was the media attention. Because, yes, it would give light to all of these other women, victims of both France and teens, and would speak about their despicable crimes, but the focus the whole trial was the Satanism. As if these crimes weren't graphic and brutal enough. Like, you really have material here, journalists and the media, but no. Everybody was like, was he actually possessed by the devil? Were both of them? How does that work? Ellison made the same conclusion I did on Francis' lawyer, but unlike me, she was actually in his presence. The fact that he is incompetent as shit and grasping at straws. She actually said his first lawyer stepped down and then was replaced by another lawyer who came in the middle of the trial. He was super lost and just tried to put up some semblance to any argument that he would make. Like, when he cross-questioned her, she just felt like, oh, not only will I not break down, but I can handle this and, like, a lot more competent lawyers than this. Teens' lawyer also irritated her. He was trying to poke holes in this case and badger her over every single minor detail. For example, he asked if Teens was actually in the car when friends leaned over to strangle her. So Allison saw right through it, because none of these men were, like, particularly intelligent. Because the lawyer was trying to suggest that Teens was not in the car. If he had been, he might have been able to stop friends. How did Teensy's background fit into this? Or rather, how it didn't? Because with France, you really don't understand it. The guy had resources, he had a family that loved him, he could have been whoever and whatever he wanted to be. With teens, though, even Ellison would say his background seems stranger than fiction. The lawyer would spin a story of Teensy's father being described as a drug-addicted philanderer, who disappeared right after Teensy's mom fell pregnant with him. Later, his father would end up in prison, but his mother wouldn't give up on love because she would marry two other times. Everything, the only thing we know about the second husband was that he was described as unsavory characters. I don't know what that meant. But after that marriage, she would marry a third guy that she met through Lonely Hearts ads. Now, I don't know if this woman took the course on how to fuck up your child for life, but first thing that she didn't tell young teens was that this third husband of hers wasn't his biological father. The second thing is they were allegations of abuse, whether it was sexual, definitely physical, by this man. So teens would flee to a community, just like Franz did with the people who were into witchcraft. Teens found his community with what, according to the court documents and the book, 
are colored people, but this in turn meant that he was bullied by the white community where he originated from. So when he had to return to school, for example, he was bullied for that. And also because during PE, when he had to change out of the shirt to go into the uniform, well, uh, the pupils realized he has the furred nipple. And then they called him Free Tit. And that scarred him for life to the point that he will actually remove his furred nipple. I cannot make this shit up. I don't want to make this shit up. I didn't understand this when it was plot in TV series Friends back in the 90s. And I don't understand it now. Is it the reason enough for you to bully somebody? Do you feel... How do you feel as people with free nipples? Do you feel like it is a shame to you? Like, I don't know, it's like a bit of extra, man. I was born with extra finger on each hand and extra toe on the other. You just remove it and you get over it. I suppose with a nipple you can't really remove it when you're a couple months old, but like, I don't understand it. Somebody explained this fixation to me and why would somebody get bullied for it? Something where I would maybe like to get more information than the nipple thing that the whole couple of paragraphs are focused on is the betrayal part. Because, well, his mom would eventually tell him that this is not his biological father, but wouldn't explain the matter, wouldn't say who his biological father was or where he is now. It was only later, once his biological father was arrested, that teens will find that out. In court, his lawyers had to present his previous criminal record. So, teens completed Standard 8, then joined the army. And while serving in the army, he claimed he had blown off a woman's head during an unrest. And as this evidence was given, he was laughing in court in Allison's court, and Judge Jansen asks this psychologist that was evaluating teens, why would he find that funny? To which this guy said that he really can't say. It was in his opinion that teens had low self-esteem, had borderline personality disorder, and this in turn made him susceptible to other people's influences. We learn about teens' personal life, and it won't come as a surprise due to the low self-esteem, the bullying, the betrayal, the fact that he probably felt unwanted. Well, because his mom pays more attention to who she marries, can't even tell him about his biological dad, that he struggled getting a woman. Rather, he struggled to get a woman consensually. So, eventually, after he stopped going to school, after the army, he would move in with his aunt. And he said he liked it there because she didn't beat him and because she fed him. So, you can see that the bar is just really low. And this is when he would finally meet Franz in June of 1994. At the time that they met, teens lived with his aunt and he was also recovering from a self-inflicted wound to the foot. He, this genius, shot himself in the foot with a shotgun. Again, nobody elaborates on this. No, let's just dive straight into the Satanism. At first, Franz didn't even realize that his friend was only 19 years old, but soon they both started escaping their troubles and their problems, and Franz would introduce him to Satanism. 
The two of them would chill at a graveyard and talk about the power of the demons, and Teens said he also wanted to experience that power. So Franz started calling him Damien, which meant son of the devil. Franz would say that he did this in order to help Teens with his low self-esteem, to really cheer him up. According to Teens, on that day when they were barbecuing and drinking, Incubus spoke to him, telling him to rape and kill a pretty woman. And the night that they abducted Allison, Teens was under the influence of this demon. In both of their testimonies, Incubus was one who was the driving force of all of that. It was the male demon, Incubus, that drove them to rape Allison that night. Both of them first, Franz second, Teens, it even told them the order to do it in. And then it was the Incubus who told them to kill her, and it was such a strong voice in their heads that they couldn't ignore it. And if you remember when Allison asked Franz not to kill her, well, for a split second, he wanted to let go of, but then Incubus was the one cheering him on to continue. Incubus had the answer for everything. I mean, I, I only wish Incubus appeared at court as well, because when they asked about the area where they stabbed her, and why not stop at the neck area? It's clearly enough to slit somebody's throat in order to kill them. Why aim for the private parts? Of course, that was Incubus is doing. You see, Franz actually wanted to rupture Allison's kidneys and liver, but it was Incubus who told him to destroy her private parts. But something that doesn't make any sense is that after the attack, I mean, none of it makes sense, let's be honest, but after the attack, they went through Allison's stuff in the car. They emptied certain things, they looked for her ID, and, well, why would you do that if you were under the spell of the devil? Clearly there was a rush, you presume that she is dead, that you have killed her, the adrenaline goes down, why are you emptying her car? Like, what is the purpose of that? Why is this supposed demon caring about what she has in her car? Franz said that he was looking for any identification, like who she really was, where she worked, and Alison said that never made any sense to her, because they believed that she was dead, so there was no address to come by to finish off what they started. And also, that didn't make sense with the devil-made-me-do-it defense. Something else that doesn't fit into that defense is that they disposed of the smaller knife, but they didn't dispose of the knife that actually had Alison's blood. They, in fact, used it to make breakfast the next day. So, maybe they just aren't operating by the guidance of the smartest demon. Just to ensure that nobody really buys into this defense, there was this colonel that testified against Franz and teens that actually believed that Satanism existed and that they were people who were possessed. But he said, based on everything that he had seen, including that camera footage from prison, and everything that he had heard, he just didn't believe that it was these two individuals. They wanted that to happen, but he didn't. Why? Because if Franz had really been possessed, he would have raped his own wife when the demons requested for it. He also wouldn't be able to think as logically to put the condom on, which is what happened with one of the victims as he was raping her. Also, if you remember, both of them confessed 
in detail to Melvin everything that they have done, which is something they wouldn't be able to remember clearly if they were actually possessed. And this colonel also said something I found really interesting, and that is that the person has a choice of whether or not they are going to obey the demon. So even if you are actually into Satanism, you should know this. So if you were to awaken a demon and they're to tell you, kill this person, you can refuse to obey. And if you commit a crime under the influence of a demon, you will not know about it or remember it afterwards. Another thing that happens after an exorcism in most cases is that people who were at some point genuinely possessed show remorse and guilt for their deeds, and this has never happened with Franz. So let us recap on the two perpetrators and speak about the motivations for them and for gang rape in general. So these two individuals, once they met, they were both troubled. Franz was a clearly dominant one, the guy that wouldn't fall under the influence of anything, even though during the trial he will try to prove that that is not the case and that he was heavily influenced by anything that walks, talks, or sings metal music. And on the other hand, we have teens, who is easily impressionable. Both of them meet and find something to bond over, find their fixation, something that is going to glue this friendship together. Franz did have a previous fixation with Satanism, and he had some knowledge of it. But with teens, I believe that Satanism was also really about the wish to belong. The desire to finally, A, have a friend, not be bullied by anybody, be understood and fully immersed with somebody who shares another passion. If he had met Franz, and Franz was to tell him that he is into bingo, teens would have been into it. This guy was desperate to find a friend, to find somebody to relate to, so we have a manipulator and a very impressionable kid. But both of them, because of different reasons, have shown some objectification of humans in the past. They are not displaying this violence because the woman's humanity is lacking. The humanity is the problem. These two, Franz basing it on his previous relationship with the witches and his previous experience with Satanism, and teens basing it off of previous bullying, his mother hiding that he was technically disowned by his father and hiding his whole background history, will both objectify women. But for one of them, for the leader, for Franz, he will have to objectify his own friend in this process as well. And to touch upon the group rape or gang rape, it is usually performed due to the peer pressure. If you remember, even in the Allison story, Teens wasn't super keen to proceed because, well, his friend just raped Allison. He knew in the back of his mind that what he's doing is wrong, that he might be breaking the law, but instead, what is important to him is not to break this friendship, because he depends on it. Because he might never be prosecuted or caught, even, for the crime that he is committing right now. But if he backs out, and, well, Franz here sees that, he's going to be considered as coward. He's going to lose the only friend that he has. So the consequences that they are thinking about are only the immediate ones. 
The men that are involved in gang rape might be more worried about their reputation with each other and their status as dominant one or the one who is very much dependent on that person being their friend rather than the life and the humanity of the person they are assaulting. That's that on the motivations. I don't know, does that make it clear in anybody's head? It's all about the peer pressure in the end and not even the devil making them do it. But let us now talk about the rest of the trial. There was a two-week break after which the trial resumed and within that break, Alison arranged for a magazine called You to interview her and that interview was done but it was only to be published once the sentence was handed over. The court would then hear the testimonies of Melvin, the police officer, the psychologist testifying on Teensy's and Francis' behalf. There was a reverend testifying on Francis' behalf, saying that he has witnessed the exorcism and based on it, he believes that Francis is indeed still possessed because he has struggled to utter the word Christ during that exorcism. That is what we are basing this decision on. Mm, evidence. But then there was an actual clergyman testifying for the prosecution that this is just a ploy and that France is the only person responsible for his own part in his actions. And that this defense is used purely to distract everybody else from those. During his verdict statement, Judge Janssen said that he didn't accept the incubus defense he said France voluntarily dabbled into Satanism and it would be a sad day if a belief in Satanism was a mitigating factor. Teens also was influenced by France, but he was not just a slavish follower. He was the one to make the first cut in Alison's neck and after he was caught, he had shown no remorse for his deeds. Not just that, but he was proud. He was proudly using the knife to prepare the food. The judge said it was clear that they have premeditated this and that they have wanted to kill Allison just because they felt like it. He finalized his statement by saying, I would be shirking my duties if I did not remove them from the society forever. France would end up getting three life terms with no parole and teens got one life term and 25 years on top of that without a parole as well. The judge also said after the verdict was handed over that he wants a note to be put into their files, signed by him, to say that if they ever, for any reason, reach parole, that whoever is their parole officer has to read that note stating that based off of judge's decision, they are never going to be able to reintegrate into the society and that they should never be let out. After her trial, Alison returned to the insurance, which is where she worked in before, but she realized more and more, I mean, she realized this even after the attack as she was slowly reintegrating back in and trying to move on with her life, that it was increasingly hard, like where she was perfectionist before, appearing on time, delivering to deadlines, she found it took her twice as much time now to deliver. She would be staying late. She would have to call in sick to just even go visit Melvin, to smoke a cigarette with him and just chat because she thought that there were only certain people who went through this with her that could understand, including Tian, including Melvin. 
the doctors that she would visit every week as well, and the psychologists and therapists that she would have. So eventually she quit her job in insurance banking because she realized increasingly as she was doing that, when she would reach out to people through her interviews and then through small gatherings where she would go on stage to speak, that she touched more souls. She related to more people as she was sharing her story. As she would get invitations to attend these events and share her experience with others, she also realized that it made her feel better once she spoke about it, and that would lead to her wanting to do it again. She also realized it had a great effect on her mental health, because she would have depression for the longest time, nightmares during the night. There were days where she didn't want to get up, to go to work, to do anything. But sharing her story with the people made her choose life over and over again, instead of blaming this on the perpetrators in order to move on. Because of these opportunities, she got to write a book, she got to participate in her own documentary, share this experience, and share all the people that have helped her out through it. And the only other time after the verdict, after the therapy, that she felt like she might fall into a depression again was in 2012. This is when she read an article that France and teens might get parole. This was based on yet another illogical rule in South African legal system where everybody imprisoned before 2004 who served 13 years could get out. So these two were to be eligible. But Alison by this point had a website and she quickly made a petition, got people to sign it, to send it to the courts. She even wrote letters to them asking them not to release them. Not only did this letter get printed out and shown to France, I think maybe teens as well, so that they read it, but then they decided to respond. France responded by getting the girl that he was dating. So there was this girl outside of prison that he was dating, seeing she was his pen pal. Well, her mother got in touch with Alison, and Alison was like, no, nah, this is madness. I'm not even entertaining this. Like, how can you get in touch with me as a mother knowing my story? Nah, I ain't entertaining this shit. She got in touch with Alison, of course, because Alison is so good-natured that she will want these two men, in particular France, to go out in the street so he can get married again and live his best life. Uh-uh. Not today, motherfucker. But the second thing that Franz did from prison after reading this letter, he wanted to be interviewed and to be featured in Alison's documentary. Yeah, because he contributed to it, right? He wanted a forgiveness letter from Alison that then he would have probably shared to the public, let's be honest. And he also wanted profit shares from both her book sales and the motivational speaking. Because had it not been for France, she wouldn't have this career. You know, when some people lose their dignity, the only thing they're left with is just bare audacity. I don't know where they get it from, just audacity strikes again. So, of course, Alison declined. Don't think I have to even tell you that. To this day, as far as I know, they are still in prison. 
And Allison moved on. She got married and she ended up having two kids with this man. Even after all of the doctors told her that it just won't be a possibility for her to be a mother. In 2008, she would divorce from her husband, and she doesn't share much about that divorce, but it was on amicable terms. Yet again, just like with everybody in Allison's life, she could have never even made an enemy. Like, she has so much forgiveness for even the perpetrators. She speaks with respect about her husband, and he even wrote a chapter in this book about how they met, about their kids, about their life that they built together, about who Allison was. And it just seemed like Allison saw this picture and she saw that she was valuing this picture of a happy marriage over valuing herself. So she chose to divorce this guy. But it's just so brilliant to me how selfless, empathetic. I don't even have the words to describe what this woman is. After the ordeal she had been, I would not be able to become half of the woman that she is. I would have so much revenge in my heart for the people that I don't know how I would ever even separate from that. Where this case is now, I actually checked the website now just to see if I'm not missing out on anything. Allison still has a website, you can get her book, you can watch her documentary on Amazon Prime. Also, she's still an inspirational speaker, so I'm not sure if you're in South Africa, in any of the areas where I mentioned today, if she might be in yours to just go and actually see her speak in public. She got nominated for the Port Elizabeth Citizen of the Year Award, and Tian, the guy that helped her out during that experience, actually went on to become a doctor. And he was the one who assisted her during the birth of her second child. I'm getting goosebumps just freaking reading this. He also got Paul Harris Award for Humanitarianism because of this. Unfortunately, in 2020, the legendary detective Melvin Humpel died from a heart attack at his home. And he was still, I forgot how old he was, I think in his 50s or 60s, so still like relatively young. And what a legend. That guy also has like the nicest smiley face. You just know he's a good-natured person, just like most of the people in this story. So, you know, chose to see the good. I guess, and choose to keep those two motherfuckers in prison. I will put a petition in a description box because I found it on her website. I managed to fill it in, so I suppose it's still a go. It still matters somewhere to keep these two in prison because the more people that fill it out, you fill out like the region and the country you're filling it out from. So I guess that helps her then if they ever face her all again. She can use that to back her case up, to say, again, there is this amount of people supporting this decision. But that is indeed where this video ends. Her story doesn't. She is still changing lives of so many people. I can't even imagine if somebody even went through a quarter of her ordeal and then goes to see her speak, share her experience, you must feel so empowered, because as a person who is lucky enough not to have gone through any of the assaults and offenses I have spoken about today, I just was so mind-blown with this whole story. 
is just on another level. What humans can do to other humans and their reasonings behind it and then how they try to justify it and how other humans react to that, how they react to such violence being committed against them. So, if you have been enjoying is a weird word to use here, if you like the stories that I am telling you during Hornsville and just in general on my channel, don't forget to like and subscribe. I should probably share my own socials. I think they're in the description box. Share them on the screen right now. For you to follow me on my personal pages on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok or wherever. It's mostly Maya's meltdown. So professional. Second, <laughs> I wonder why nobody's contact me. Tastify. Sponsorship. Okay. Now stop being a retard. Yeah, follow me on my socials and like and subscribe. And now I would like to end this again on a serious note with the parting words from Alison and her book. Because this particular paragraph just wraps it all up and she can end this video much better than I can. Alison chose life over and over again. And according to her, we must learn to live not in our skin, but through it. When we live through our skin, we connect with the world outside, open ourselves to it without judgment or expectation. We will see the signs along the way. We will notice the little hints that come along and help to guide us. If we are self-absorbed, we cannot take in the vista outside. We must learn to embrace the chaos, but never allow it to embrace us. Knowing it is there is half the battle won, and you will not be surprised when it strikes.